Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Episode 596 with my guest, Rebecca D. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit banging around in our domes. I thought I'd mix it up. Normally I say skull. Um... This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. Uh, I just came from my Thursday night support group, and the topic was on um, the traditions at this meeting that we have and other meetings like them. And they were put in place because when support groups started, or at least these types of support groups, it became <laughs> it became apparent very early on, and this is 70, 80 years ago, maybe longer, that people wanted to find help and people wanted to help other people, but fucked up people trying to help fucked up people, shit's gonna get fucked up. And so they slowly realized we need some guidelines to kind of uh, help keep people in a space where they get along so that this whole thing doesn't explode. And I was, it really, really got me thinking about the balance between love and control. Uh, you know, it, loving people seems easy on the surface. And I suppose it is if we can let go of our idea of how they're supposed to act. And I suppose that that could apply to the rest of the world as well. Because our sense of safety, I don't think we ever equate it with giving love and being compassionate. We equate it with people doing things the way we want them to. In other words, trying to control things. I think in our human brains, we cannot conceive of a universe expanding that 
we have no power or very little power in and that it could possibly turn out okay. That we could just let go of the handlebars and we'd be going on a great ride. That, that I think, for the human brain is almost inconceivable. And for me, that's where spirituality, whatever you want to call it, comes in. Is is like, I need a fucking game plan to be a good person. I can't just wake up and go, well, I'm going to be a good person today. No, because I'm a fucking control freak. So right away, I'm going to be either, you know, trying to control or manipulate or just avoiding people because people are fucking complicated. And I'm a fearful person. So how do we interact with each other in a way that is loving and compassionate, but also self-aware so that we're not controlling each other? And that, to me, is the, that, that's the kernel. That's the, the center of the ball bearing, is how do we lean into powerlessness rather than running from it? Because if you look at the positive parts of powerlessness, is you can let go of responsibility not for everything, but for the things you can't control, like what people post on Facebook or an opinion that your uncle has or, uh, you know, what your kid likes or doesn't like to eat. Letting go of that shit, in my opinion, is the only way that we can feel peaceful enough that love and compassion can come naturally from us. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but as you could tell my support group meeting tonight, it got me, it really got me thinking. And uh, I don't know. Let's let's read some surveys. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey. And D, formerly Lori, uh, says, thank you for your interview with Gabe Howard. Did you intend to edit out that sneeze at the end or did you leave it in on purpose? Uh, I did not leave that in on purpose. That must have been an oversight on my part. Uh, also, is that you on the guitar at the opening and closing of the show? Yes, that is me on the guitar. Unless you don't like it, in which case that is somebody else. Uh, this is from the Fear survey filled up by Cleopatra. And uh, she writes, I'm afraid, and I love this one so much, I'm afraid that I think I'm smarter than I actually am. And that once I finish university and get into grad school, I will realize that everyone else, everyone else around me has incredibly deep insights and ideas that I could only dream of coming up with on my own. I will struggle in my field and be saddled with so much student debt that I have to work a job I hate to pay it off or else file for bankruptcy, have to break up with my boyfriend so our house doesn't get taken away because of me and then have to start all over alone with the newfound knowledge that I am below average in every conceivable way. And I just realized that student debt isn't absolved through bankruptcy, so I'd actually have to flee into the wilderness to live out my days a hermit without any ability to contribute to society in the way I dream of doing. (laughs) That is Hall of Fame, fucking fantastic. And holy shit, do I fucking relate to that. It's, it's, is that just some of us or is that the, the human race that it's either glory or catastrophe? <laughs> that, there's, that there can be no satisfying life somewhere in the middle being one of many and connecting to each other. 
Uh, this is from the love survey filled out by BB, and uh, they write, I love those moments when you can find common ground with a stranger and realize we're all just looking for happiness, that we all hurt, we all make mistakes. I really believe people are more good than bad. I like the moment when you realize that and share that moment. Beautiful. Beautiful. Love it. This is from the fear survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Hellevator. And she writes, I fear that I will never be good for anyone. I told no one about this, but I badly want to meet someone who will help and love me in everything that anyone failed to make me feel. And the reason I wanted to read this one is because, and she's under 18, um, I wanted to read this because I want to say, if you're listening, I want to save you some uh, spinning of your wheels as an adult. Uh, Nobody will fill in the part of you uh, that requires you loving yourself and you bringing about the feelings that you want to feel in life because human beings are flawed and they're going to disappoint you. And that doesn't mean that they're not going to have moments where they fill you up and you feel amazing. But looking for somebody to fill us up is a recipe for disaster. There's a book by uh, Pia Melody called Facing Love Addiction that if you're listening, I highly recommend reading that um, because it it, it it is crazy making uh, when we put that responsibility on somebody to give us the feelings that we want so that we can feel okay. This is from the Fear survey filled out by Doom and Gloom on a lovely afternoon. I think we read some of her stuff uh, previously. And uh, she writes, I fear that these internal struggles only seem to get worse, not easier with time. With time. I fear I'm becoming less cute with each passing year. Is this my fate to become less attractive and more bitter as I work myself to death while trying to outmaneuver the crushing medical debt as my body parts fail one by one? And as I helplessly witness the suffering and illnesses of my loved ones, I am afraid I will never live in a society that values its citizens and allows us all to thrive, and those of us who truly care are too burnt out to change things for future generations. Well, I hate to break the news to you, but that is the bottom half of the Declaration of Independence. Most people never read that far. Yeah. When people say, we're number one, I always want to say, really? Really? The wealthiest society in the history of humankind, and we allow our fellow citizens to be bankrupted by cancer. This is an awful moment filled up by, uh, oh, this is filled up by the same person, by doom and gloom. And uh, she writes, my husband and I both struggle with recurring depression, and recently we're both going through it at the same time. He and I sat there at the dinner table lamenting the bleakness of existence and wondering what is the point of anything. By the way, it, Is it red or white that goes with existential dread? Uh, The conversation became increasingly morbid as he told me that if he were diagnosed with a terminal illness, he wouldn't even bother seeking treatment. 
I admitted that I don't want to end my own life at this time simply because I'd feel too bad about leaving our dog to wonder what the fuck happened to me. The tone of our conversation was flat and emotionless, as though we were discussing what to watch on TV or which color to paint the living room wall. Just then, the curtain billowed softly, and we realized our windows had been open this whole time. We had such a laugh, wondering if any of the neighbors caught bits of our weird conversations. It was either that or that was the Grim Reaper coming in, listening to you guys for a little while, and then like, I can't fucking handle this. This is this is too heavy, even for me. I am going to take my my sickle and skedaddle. Is it Sith? Sickle? Oh, God, I should have paid attention in school. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must-read for anyone in medicine, from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com breath. This episode is sponsored by Prolon. Extended fasting of at least two to three days has unique benefits such as cellular rejuvenation, an idea that was awarded the 2016 Nobel Prize in Medicine, and Prolon is based on that. It's a plant-based nutrition program that nourishes the body while making cells believe that they're fasting. Uh, my package just arrived. It's uh, Each day has its own little container with very clear instructions on how you're going to do it. And I'm very interested to, to see how, uh, how it's going to go. Prolon isn't a diet. Prolon is science. Right now, Prolon is offering Metal Illness Happy Hour listeners 10% off their five-day nutrition program. Go to prolonlife.com slash podcast. That's P-R-O-L-O-N life.com slash podcast for this special offer. That's prolonlife.com slash podcast. And then uh, finally, this is a survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Cheap Date. And uh, she writes, uh, I was sexually abused multiple times by the same man over the course of six months. After repressing that for a while, uh, I spent the last two years working through this in therapy. After lots of work, my therapist suggested that I go back to the area where this happened as a form of closure. When I was looking up Airbnbs, one of the apartments that was available for rent was exactly the place where one of the assaults took place. I couldn't help but laugh uncontrollably. I think this is the definition of kismet. 
It was also incredibly cheap. This man didn't even have the decency to assault me in an expensive hotel room. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm, I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt. Push it all down. You can't go around it. Ireland, like, we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget experiencing the same thing as you. That the places you feel most broken now you just gotta look for them. Will one day be your greatest strength. And when you find them, it's a great feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Uh, you're in the right place. I am here with my friend Rebecca D. Uh, and we don't know each other that well. We have uh, we know each other from support group meetings. And uh, I heard you share uh, about a month ago. And I was like, wow, she would be a great guest for the podcast. And fortunately, you said yes. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I've actually been listening to your podcast for uh, quite some time. And um, I was elated when you asked me to come on. Well, the, now the pressure's on to not cr crush your spirit. <laughs> uh, where do we start? Where are and we're going to use? Uh, we're going to withhold your last name just so kind of, you can kind of speak more freely about um, really intimate stuff and perhaps family. Um, where do we start? Where are you from? So I was born and raised in Los Angeles. I've heard of it. Um, and I was born into an interesting family dynamic where um, I was the daughter from my mother's second marriage. Mm -hmm. So my mother's first marriage was to a man who was Orthodox Jewish. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with two older half-sisters who are Orthodox Jews. Mm -hmm. But I was never raised to be an Orthodox Jew. Gotcha. So they stuck to it even – well, I suppose they had uh, still had contact with their father. Yes, they still had contact with their father. Um, we would each go and see our fathers on the weekends because my parents did end up getting divorced as well. Mm-hmm. But um, my sisters were very observant in their religious practices, and mm. they maintained um, the house in such a way that, that they could, you know. Kosher dishes. Kosher dishes, separate sides of the sink, you know, no electricity on Saturdays, mm. you know, walking walking to and from synagogue on Saturdays, no touching money, mm -hmm. um, no no ripping things, like no ripping paper, no cutting, things like that. Really? Yeah, yeah. But I was never raised that way. And and my father on the opposite end of the spectrum was um, very different altogether from their father. So that's kind of how I ended up in like two completely different worlds with this like very religious observant background. But then because of my father, I ended up being like highly sexualized as a child. So it was like really like a huge dichotomy. Wow. Yeah. And your sisters watched that happen. My sisters had an awareness that that was happening. Mm -hmm. um, but, 
you know, because it was happening when I was over at his house. Oh, okay. My parents divorced when I was five. Okay. So it was kind of like, you know, I would go to my father's house and be one person, and then I would come back to my mother's house and I would be a different person. And was that a conscious decision on your part? Um, I think that it was not a conscious decision, but I think that it was more of a subconscious tactic to kind of, um, you know, blend in, so to speak. Keep that happy? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my father, um, and this is something that I felt, you know, very connected to you over when I heard you share. There was a lot of what what, you know, I later discovered is called covert incest Mm -hmm. involved um, with my father. He kind of, in some ways, put me on a pedestal and I was his confidant and his best friend um, and his therapist and even his wingwoman. When him and my mother got divorced, I would go on dates with him from as early as age five. And, um, and so there was that happening. Would you be with him when he was trying to pick up women or just on the dates? Both. Like what would he – what were some of the things that he would say to you uh, about w- prospective women or women he was dating? Oh, my gosh. Well, he was very blunt and very honest. When he would pick up women, he was always very charming and very funny and very charismatic. Mm-hmm. And – I mean, in a lot of ways, I credit him to, like, me having really good, like, social skills in that Mm -hmm. regard. Mm -hmm. Um, But he was very, very objectifying. He would say, like, thing, you know, he would make comments about women's bodies. Um, I can't imagine the effect that has on a young girl. Yeah. He would sometimes call women, like, dogs. If they were unattractive by his standards. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was interesting because at that age, it didn't even occur to me that I'm, you know, I'm going to be a woman too someday. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like we would objectify women together. Mm-hmm. But from his standpoint, it was like sexualizing objectification. Mm-hmm. And from my standpoint, it was almost like having a human Barbie doll. Like it was like, wow, yeah, like that I makes sense. Yeah, like oh my god, she's prettier than the other one, mm-hmm. and I like her hair because my mother was always very like, um, you know, bare bones in terms of her style. She didn't really like to get dolled up. Right. And then there was like this other world of seeing women with my father who were like, you know, glamorous, and it was like. I felt like I was right along with him and he really valued my opinion in terms of, you know, my ability to pick women for him. Wow. Have you talked to him lately? Do you still have contact with him? I don't still have contact with him. When did that end? That ended around the time when I was 21 years old. And you're how old, if you don't mind me asking? I'm 33 now. Okay. Yeah. And what were the circumstances of separating, uh, ending the relationship with him? So it was one particular incident that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm -hmm. But 
you know, it wasn't until after I cut ties with him that I realized that there were so many things. But the one incident was that my father would uh, very often violate my physical boundaries. And, you know, he never sexually assaulted me, but he was constantly, like, grabbing at me. What? Particularly grabbing my stomach from the time that I was a child all the way until, like, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old. He would grab my stomach and he would make comments about, you know, my belly, about, you know, my weight. And he would think that he was doing it in a way that was endearing. Um, but it was like really, really traumatic. Do you remember your first thoughts and feelings when, when he would do it? Rage, rage. I felt like, um, I felt like I wanted to strangle him and I learned very quickly because my father was like kind of a bully and he would always have these like very quick remarks and mm-hmm. jokes for things. So I learned that the the best way for me to fight him off was if I had a comeback that was even sharper and even more um, profound and, 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 you know. Well, that's, that's a lot of pressure on a kid. Yeah, yeah. But it was the way to get him to stop. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what some of those exchanges sounded like? Yeah, there's one in particular that I remember. He used to call me Bagel Belly. Jesus. Yeah. And I said, if I have a bagel, then you have a bun cake. <laughs> did he laugh? Um, He did laugh. Yeah. yeah. He laughed, which was, you know, I mean, he could take it in stride. He sounds definitely like a narcissist. Yeah, a lot of narcissistic qualities. And narcissists can be so charming. That's the thing that's so frustrating about being a family member of a narcissist is the world is so charmed by them. And they have no idea what goes on behind closed doors. Yeah, he's absolutely that person. I mean, he was so, like, charismatic. And everybody Mm -hmm. that met him would be, like, you know, in tears from laughing at just how funny he was. He could really, like, command the room by how, um, you know, charming he was. What uh, other forms of a – you said you were never sexually assaulted uh, by him. He would grab your belly. Was there – and, you know, to me, that is a a form of – Assault, yeah, you're not going to go down to the police station and report something like that. But I think any time you make a child feel like an object or that their body isn't theirs, that they don't have autonomy over it, to me, it doesn't matter if you're, uh, you know, if there's penetration or you're just grabbing a kid's belly and calling them chubby or whatever. It's still demeaning it makes him feel like they aren't uh safe yeah does it it, does it really matter the envelope that the news you're not safe arrives in right right yeah whether he's sneaking into your bedroom at night or you know he's calling you bagel belly yeah i mean it definitely had a very traumatic effect on me for sure and um 
I always considered myself, I guess I always kind of minimized it as a coping strategy and kind of considered myself lucky Mm -hmm. because he never sexually assaulted me. Um, But it was, it had um, very harmful repercussions throughout my adolescence in particular. Would you ever find yourself uh, shutting down, dissociating, you know, instead of the comeback? Um, on occasion, yeah, I would have to just ignore it. But the the confusing thing about the way that my father would pick on people is that because he was so funny, like there were times when even if he was saying something incredibly hurtful, even if it was directed at you, you couldn't help but laugh. Right. And that was like the most confusing thing ever because it's like, how do I stand here and make a case for how you're hurting me, your daughter, when I just laughed at your joke. It's it's so true. It's so true. Um, I didn't realize until, God, I was in my late 20s, early 30s, that underneath my sense of humor was incredible hostility. Uh, I was taking an improv class at Second City and the teacher was taking suggestions and I said something and he just stopped and he turned at me and he said, you're so hostile. And I had no fucking idea. I thought I was charming and funny. So I imagine your dad probably had, had no idea, at least when it came to his sense of humor, that he was as hurtful as he was. Maybe he was. I don't know. I think he had some idea. Yeah. Because it didn't start with me. My dad initially started bullying my oldest sister. And she was not his daughter. And he bullied her, like, mercilessly, called her names, you know, made fun of her weight. And um, I was, like, a toddler at the time. You know, when my parents divorced, I was five years old. So by that time... Like he was out of the house, but I think that, you know, the repercussions of that were just incredible. I don't think Mm -hmm. I've, you know, to this day, I don't don't think I've been able to have a normal relationship or a healthy relationship with, um, with either of my sisters, but particularly her because of that. I always felt this sense of like guilt and personal responsibility. At At a girl, way to, way to take responsibility yeah. for your dad's sick behavior. Even though I was like three years old well, at the time. Well, that's old enough to know. That's old <laughs> enough to know, Rebecca. You should have done better. You failed. You failed your stepsister. I could have done more. Yeah. Um, so what ended the relationship with your with your dad? What did that look like? So the first step in ending the relationship with my father was basically telling him, Uh, In so many words, don't fucking touch me. I was 18 when that first conversation happened. And it erupted in a fight because his point was, I'm your father. I can do whatever I want. And at that point, yeah. You know, I was like, you don't get a prize because you got my mother pregnant. (laughs) You know? What What was his mom like? His mother was... Um, very, very neurotic, 
um, there was a lot of covert incest that was there too. And my dad was the, was the recipient, was the recipient. Yeah. Even though he had two older brothers, there was a lot of violence in his childhood. Um, my father's older, so he was drafted in the Vietnam war. Mm -hmm. Um, he was actually volunteered for the draft by his own father. Yeah. So a lot of, a lot of trauma for sure. So you, you said, don't touch me. Mm -hmm. And he freaked out. And then it was a series of back and forth kind of like threats of like, okay, if you cannot stop doing this, I'm going to have no choice but to terminate my relationship with you. And and how did you get to the point where you stood up for yourself? Did you come about that on your own? Were you in therapy? I was in therapy. I was going to say because yeah. uh, was it even on your radar that that's something you should stand up for yourself about? Not at all. It wasn't for me either. Yeah, was- not at all. I actually thought it was normal. I went to college and thought that, you know – if you're not an Orthodox Jew, like my sisters are, then you either have a mother like my mother or a father like my father. I just thought that that was the relationship that every daughter had with their dad, which sounds crazy. But it wasn't until I went to college. And what did you see that illuminated? Um, in particular, I had a friend and we – this at this point, we, we were 21 and um, – her dad took us all on a wine tour. I went to college in Pennsylvania. So there's like this like wine, you know, popular area where they have a lot of wineries in the in the um, Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania. And her dad took us all around. He was the designated driver and he was like really caring and like nurturing. And he didn't say anything that was um, – off color or embarrassing. He didn't mm-hmm. humiliate her. He was just like really, really great. And I remember feeling so happy for her. Like, wow, this is amazing. She is an awesome dad. But then there was that lingering feeling of like, my dad would never do that. Not only would my dad never do that, but I would never ask him to do that because he would be too much of a liability. He would say something, some comment about one of my friend's breasts or, you know, one of the people that worked there. Like it would, it, it wouldn't be worth it for me to ask my dad to do something like that. Even if he did say yes, there would be consequences. I remember bringing college friends home and my mom, after they would leave, would, you know, say, oh, that one is so attractive. Oh, my God. <laughs> just... It just you know, it didn't strike me as inappropriate at the time, um, but I just remember you, you just you just kind of shut down. It's like you ignore it. You just hope that's the end of it. Yeah, yeah. You get like this queasy feeling. For me, it was like this like icky feeling that made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Because mm-hmm. my father would. You know, he would insult me on the one hand, but then he would also, in the same breath, would say, you're so beautiful. You know you're going to have guys lined up at your door when you're older. You know, and mm-hmm. he would say things that ma- made me feel like he was really putting me on a pedestal. Right. Sometimes he would even use words like hot. 
Oh, man. I remember him telling me I was sexy when I was eight years old. Oh, my God. And I remember feeling like, I don't I don't know any of what this means, but I don't like it. Yeah. So how did your struggle with addiction begin to present itself? Um, I think I was always an addict, for sure. I think that my drug of choice took on different forms but um you know throughout my life but certainly when i was a child my first drug was fantasy mm-hmm. i can remember being in fantasy from the age of 3 because i just didn't want to be where i was and what kind of uh fantasies um it was always like a very um Disney movie being Mm -hmm. rescued by the white knight kind of a thing. But at the same time, I had a lot of exposure to like sex and violence because my father would show me rated R movies. The first movie that I remember watching with him when I was like five years old was Pulp Fiction. (laughs) Um, And like I remember I would act out the scenes from that movie with my Barbies (laughs) Stab it with a needle. So, yeah, it. with the EpiPen in the heart. Yeah, or like the cocaine overdose. Or we used to watch this one show together called Cops. Mm-hmm. That was like a reality TV oh, yeah. show. Oh, yeah. And so I, kn- I knew what all of that stuff was. I knew what um, sex and violence was. And couple that with the fact that like my mom is a gynecologist. So I also have this like incredibly like advanced knowledge of like female reproductive system from the time that I was a child. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember when I would go to her office, I would like pretend that the, the ultrasound um, like the transvaginal ultrasound probe was a microphone and would sing Madonna songs. (laughs) That is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So I was just like always in fantasy. And then once I became a teenager, I started drinking and very quickly learned that my body does not tolerate alcohol. So marijuana became my drug of choice Mm -hmm. for a very long time, off and on. But I just had this relationship with marijuana that it seemed like nobody else I knew smoked the way that I did. Every day? Every day, yeah. Sometimes multiple times a day. And I imagine that helped quiet the troops in your head to some degree? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, I would eat an entire pizza by myself and go into a shame spiral. (laughs) But it fills up the whole night, so there's that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then once I got a little bit older, well, actually, that's not true because really when I was... Even from the time that I was a child, I was always boy crazy. Mm-hmm. And my parents laughed it off as like, oh, she's just boy crazy. Like my parents knew about me having crushes on people, adults, from the age of like six. And they would laugh at it, you know, and just think that it was like a harmless kind of silly thing. I remember when I was 14 and we went on a school trip. Um, because I went to an all-girls high school. 
but we went on a school trip and um when I came back from the trip the 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 teacher who was chaperoning ended up having a conversation with my mother about um my extremely flirtatious behavior um with him with or? with with boys that I met on the trip yeah, yeah that were I I guess that went to this high school and for instance what were would some of the things be that you would say that he saw as overly flirtatious anything to get attention i would sit on boys laps like we would be taking pictures together you know and not really i think the the biggest part of it cuz to an extent Everybody was doing that at that age. But the, the biggest part of it was that it didn't matter to me if I had an audience. It didn't matter if that audience was the teacher who was chaperoning. It was like that was my drug and I was going to get it. And what did it feel like? What were the thoughts when you would, um, you know, hit the jackpot? What What's the scenario, you know? that? I mean, it was like – it was really like high, like getting high. What was the payoff? People looking at you – um uh what what were you seeking not as much people looking at me because that always ultimately ended up in me feeling ashamed mm-hmm. particularly when it got back to my sisters because my sisters were very they were very observant very religious and my sisters were extremely humiliated by that kind of behavior mm-hmm. from me but the payoff for me at that time was validation it validated sure. me it made me feel like i was worthy, that I was attractive. People find me attractive because that was the thing that I had learned from my father was my greatest asset, was whether or not men found me attractive. And what were their reactions that made you feel like you were validated or attractive? Um, well, they were perpetuating it. They kept, you know, oftentimes they would try to put me in a scenario where we could hook up. Right. Um, and I didn't realize until later that it was a numbers game to them, you know, being that they were young boys, they wanted to, you know, cross it off their list. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it was always the kind of thing where like in the moment I felt like I'm the most special girl in the world. Like this is about me. This is validating me. This is giving me – feeding my ego and then inevitably it would always come about that I would find out that there were more girls or I was one of many or like it was just a fling for them mm-hmm. and I would be heartbroken. And, and the, the thing that's interesting too is there's objectification going on on both parties. You know, when we're looking for validation, that person to us just becomes a vessel for us to – a mirror for us to try to get a sense of self and worth from, we don't even realize in that moment that um, we're reducing that person to a, you know, a glance or a, you know, some type of response that makes us feel like. Yeah, using them as a drug. Yeah, using them as a drug. Of course, in my mind, they were going to be my husband. Yeah. I was like, you know. Because I was also in fantasy, so I was like, "Oh, I find I found it. The answer to all of my problems. I'm never going to have to feel sad anymore because my husband is going to take care of everything now." How can that turn out bad? <laughs> How could that backfire? Uh, so 
did did things then begin to escalate um the the older you got was it always just validation what what were the addictions i guess i'm i'm asking if you're comfortable talking about yeah that. yeah so for me the addiction started out as validation and then um the validation addiction kind of was pervasive throughout my entire like addictive history and in a lot of mm-hmm. ways it still is. Um, but one thing that particularly once – particularly after I turned 30 that became um, an addiction for me was power and control. I wanted power and control in relationships. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you know all of my childhood fantasies and all of my fantasies as a as a teenager, I was very taken care of. It's interesting. It goes from being rescued to dominating. To dominating. And I did. And I was a dominatrix for some time. Oh, really? Yeah. Not professionally, but in my, but in my personal intimate relationships, that was a big thing for me. When did the, those fantasies begin? After 30? It, it became a kink? Is that Would that be an appropriate term yeah, for it? Yeah. Was it a new kink for you? Or? It was a new kink for me. What happened was that I had dated a man um, sometime around, let's say, 29 to 30, who was um, the first and only man that I ever dated who was actually emotionally available. And that's when I discovered my love avoidance because I started to have these feelings like, you know, I mean, it was crazy to me. I had found what I was looking for, somebody who was willing to commit, who was ready to show up in a relationship and give me everything I had ever wanted that I had been working so hard for. <laughs> you must have felt such rage at him. <laughs> and I wanted to, like, set myself on fire to right. get away from him. Did you feel anger at him or was it just discomfort? No, it wasn't anger. It was repulsion. Repulsion. And I didn't I didn't have an awareness at the time of what love avoidance was and that that was going on. I thought that – I honestly thought that what had happened was that I, I lost the ability to become physically intimate with him. And I thought that it was just I'm not a sexual person anymore in general. That part of me died. And I imagine that was painful for him to, to be Extremely. rebuffed or – yeah, it was extremely painful for him, especially because, you know, and again, I wasn't aware at the time, but there was a part of me that was kind of trying to convince him that he was the crazy one and this was normal. And we, you know, we had only dated for a year and we ended up going to couples therapy together. Mm-hmm. We were doing um, like intimacy exercises. We were doing like reading the Gottman books and doing eye gazing exercises. And the more he tried to get me to you know, ha- like really truly be intimate with him, the more I just felt like I wanted to jump out of my skin. Yeah, it's like if if you don't deal with the trauma first, uh, you know, I heard somebody say one time that you can't get married until you divorce your mother, <laughs> you know, or father. It It's like all the eye-gazing exercises you want to do, uh, to me, I think, are futile if you're not going to, you know, Open that box. It has all the tears and the rage in it. Yeah. So I imagine you had a glimpse of what the future might look like if things just kept going, that that you would feel this loneliness, uh, this lack of connection. Is 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 that what the, the bottom was, was just a feeling of disconnection and 
an unsatisfactory uh, romantic life? Yeah, I mean, there were two possible outcomes. Either I was going to be miserable in a relationship or I was going to shut down and I was never going to be in a relationship again. You know, I was just going to give up and say, well, I'm just going to be on my own. That's it. Go get some cats. Right. Because I knew that like, you know, remember, I tried dating somebody who was available and there was that that spark mm-hmm. died very quickly. Pretty yeah. much as soon as that person showed themselves to be completely available. What described the repulsion and and what he was doing that was causing the repulsion, if you can remember any specific instances? Well, it was more so what my brain was doing to find the repulsion. I mean, when you're in a long-term relationship with somebody, you get very comfortable around them. And if I saw him getting out of the shower, it was like, it was like total it was like drinking poison for me like i was so unattracted to like his physical form getting out of the shower that like it made me feel like i i, I can't do this i can't do this what am i doing or even just walking around naked you know and that's absurd because he's mm-hmm. a very attractive man mm-hmm. it actually had nothing to do with what his body looked like you know and he saw me getting out of the shower walking around naked plenty of times and for him, it was just – he was like – he's he'd seen me, you know, in all kinds of compromising positions from snot crying to being sick and it didn't matter to him. He he loved me and that was that. But for me, it was it was enough to um, – you know, my avoidance was going to find a reason to find him yeah, repulsive. It's funny how, how our brain will pick apart other people in an attempt to make us feel safe. Mm-hmm. It's so fucked up. It is, yeah. And it just robs us of such connection and so many moments in life that are just fucking amazing. If we never, if we never heal that pick apart bully in our brain, it fucking runs the show till we die. Yeah, I mean, the the pick-apart bully that lived in my brain was really my dad because my dad would do the same thing to me. I mean, Mm -hmm. I remember when I was getting ready to go to my dad's house, I had to make sure that my entire appearance was, you know, near perfect by his standards. If I would get into his car, he would look at my toenails and go, when's the last time you had a pedicure? Wow. Like so nitpicky, Yeah, you know? I'm sorry that that's that's the the hand you were dealt, but thank God you're in recovery and and now you can help other people. And do you do you feel like um, the all the work you've done in the support group is is helping you grow emotionally and be open to intimacy? Absolutely. I I think that that having a community of people who are exactly like me, or maybe not exactly like me, but have similar issues. Um, was a, a huge relief for it's me. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. And knowing that I'm not crazy, I'm not broken. This is actually a very normal and predictable thing that happened based on the experiences that I had in childhood. Like it couldn't have turned out any other way based on what my parents were like. And so what did the recovery look like? And what does the recovery look like? What were some of the 
obviously, you know, you began to unpack dad and not feeling safe as a kid. How how did you process that? So I'm um, pretty new to being in the support group still. I'm about four months in. Oh, I didn't know it was, it's yeah. been that. Yeah. But the um, the results that I've seen so far have been tremendous. You know, there's a lot of writing involved in um, in in my recovery and getting it out on paper, all of the memories and experiences that I've had with my father, and then looking at um, how it affected me and what my fears are to this day around those experiences and seeing that, like, even if there's two experiences that seem wildly different and unrelated – the the patterns that emerge based on what those fears are, I mean, it's incredible. It's such a spiritual process being able to get it out on paper because it's kind of like it's kind of like in that movie A Beautiful Mind, mm-hmm. where like he's standing there and the numbers on the chalkboard are all kind of moving behind him and connecting. Yeah. And you, it 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 feels like um it's doing incredible things for me. Understanding our fears is such an amazing trail of breadcrumbs to our authenticity, you know, and our resentments, and you know where we've wronged people, where we've been in the wrong. Uh, it I I can't imagine uh, growth without understanding what scares us. Yeah, it would. I mean, it's really. Um... It's mind-blowing to me how many people go through life without ever wanting to really look at where they came from and why they are the way they are. Mm -hmm. I mean, and don't get me wrong, it's scary. I get why people want to not go there because it's terrifying. Um, But what comes out of it is just amazing. What, uh, you know, as, as you began journaling and you began looking at your part in things, what patterns uh, were revealed to you of ways that you had possibly wronged other people, parts about yourself that you didn't, weren't thrilled to find out? Yeah, definitely the same type of um, like perfectionism and nitpicking behavior that my father exhibited Mm -hmm. and a lot of objectifying people too. Um, men and women, I would, you know, I would objectify men and I would objectify women as well. And, and basically center their value around whether or not they were physically attractive, which was a huge, huge character defect of mine. I remember sitting in a coffee shop a couple of years ago and there was a mother uh, and her two teenage daughters sitting next to me and they were looking at pictures of people on their phone and just pictures of women and just picking them apart. And I just remember feeling so sorry for not just the, the, the girls, but the, the mother, you know, it's, it's kind of like the prison you talked about of, of your own making. It's like, we don't even, we don't even realize the prisons we built for, for ourselves. 
Yeah. And it comes from a place of my own insecurities, right? Like if I, if I'm so focused on you and what's wrong with you, it's because I feel like there's so much Mm -hmm. wrong with me that I don't even want to focus on myself. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I love about support groups is when we start listing our resentments at people, you know, it's not long before we find out that we embody the exact qualities that we're resenting other people for, you know. It may not be our biggest qualities, but as if we look at our past, you know, fuck, I found out I was a hypocrite, I was cruel, I was dishonest, I was a liar, uh, you know, all the things I don't want to get on my fucking soapbox and, and bitch about, you know, politicians. I had a thirst for power. Yeah. I yeah. used people. Yeah, I definitely used people. Definitely. And the same, you know, for my mother, like the same things that I, you know, just found so intolerable about my mother were the same things that like existed within me, like the avoidance, the way that she doesn't deal with issues. She just kind of goes, "Eh, I'm going to ignore them. That same thing was me in relationships. Like I became my mother in romantic relationships and it was scary I was like, who am i are you beginning to find platonic intimacy in the, the the support groups and if so what does that look like and are there any moments that you can share where you could feel change or growth definitely one of the biggest things for me was you know that kind of was a catalyst in being able to find platonic intimacy was my own emotional accessibility. Because very early on into program, um, I was still smoking weed heavily when I was in program. And when I kind of, you know, went through withdrawal. um, From the weed or from uh, relationships and fantasy and all that. From relationships and fantasy once and, you know, sexual liaisons once I went into withdrawal from that and really kind of isolated myself in my cocoon the weed smoking picked up a whole lot I bet a whole lot and um I got a sponsor pretty quickly and um I realized on my own that my withdrawal process was going to be prolonged unless I also stopped smoking weed good for you yeah so I stopped smoking weed and what I what I realized happened after that is that my emotions became so much more accessible to me. So much more accessible. Like I can actually cry now when I hear somebody give a share that feels very poignant and like it resonates with my story. Yeah. That wouldn't happen before. And so are there any moments where you were now feeling at the level of 10 as opposed to high on weed and feeling him at three or four. Um, yeah. I mean, I will regularly cry when I hear people's shares if the, if it really, you know, pulls on my heartstrings and, um, developing relationships, you know, platonic relationships with fellows in the program who have stories that can be similar to mine can Mm -hmm. also be wildly different from mine, but just having, a group of people who feel safe because they understand what you're going through and they're not going to um, engage in those behaviors that you engaged in that were unsafe. It feels like it's the difference between, you know, it's like going through a cave, like a dark cave mm-hmm. by yourself, going through a dark cave with a flashlight. 
with a group of people with flashlights. With a group yes. of people with flashlights. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing feeling. And, you know, I think one of the myths is that, you know, you get a group of people you know, who are there because they can't stop hooking up, that it's going to be a big hookup scene and it couldn't be further. It's like sex is is probably one of the least talked about things in there. You know, that most of the, the topics are about perfectionism and negative self-talk and toxic family members and self-hatred and dread and fear and anxiety. And that, that was that was such a revelation to me. You know, somebody said one time, uh, not in the support group, but I don't know where I heard the quote, but everything is about sex except sex. Yeah. Yeah, it I mean, it's amazing to me also because this is really a childhood disease. Yeah. It, that's where it starts. I mean, I I mean, I'm convinced I was I was born this way, mm-hmm. you know? I was it was inevitable that I would develop these issues. So it sounds like you've made peace uh around it uh that that this is your lot in your life and but there's a purpose. Yeah. In it. Most definitely. I think so. I think, um, I think it's all by design. I think nothing is by accident. And I think that I feel privileged to know that this support group exists and to mm-hmm. be able to go out there and spread the message. Because a lot of people in this support group, they come by way of other support groups. Mm-hmm. But this is my first support group. So and that, you started with a PhD program, man. Yeah. It, it, this one goes so much deeper than a lot of the other support groups. Yeah. But the fact that it's my first support group and that most of the people there come by way of other support groups, mm-hmm. already that tells me that there are many, many people in the world who have this affliction who aren't dealing with it because mm-hmm. they don't know about the resources that exist or because of the shame or the stigma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so true. Uh, so what are the battles today in um, keeping your sobriety, whatever that, that looks like? Is there a battle to, to stay away from the weed or is that something you you feel like you've distanced yourself from? Is that going to be a long-term thing or you just don't even want to think about it? Um, it has to be a long-term thing. I've, I've, uh, played that game so many times where it was like, well, I think I can probably smoke like a normal person now, but every time it ends the same way, you Mm -hmm. know, I always set up little rules for myself where I'm only going to smoke at the end of the day, or I'm only going to do this. I'm only going to do that. And then it's only a matter of time before I come up with some bullshit rationalization of why it's actually great for me to not abide by those rules and it's totally fine. Isn't it amazing how the addict brain will justify anything? Yeah. Anything. Yeah. It is so hard to wrangle yeah. that part. Definitely. Uh, I would say that the biggest battle for me right now is that, you know, when you come into program and you start to adopt the lingo and you start to live by it, um, one of the tricky things for me was was – um, the friends that I had pre-program, I started to feel like I was losing touch with them. I started mm-hmm. to feel like they were people who really um, served who I was when I was in my addiction. Mm-hmm. And the result of that was 
a desire for me to just kind of isolate and not be social at all and just to like protect myself and kind of only want to surround myself with people that are in the program because, mm-hmm. you know, having friends who, you know, validation fish via social media or, you know, have um, casual sex and promiscuous relationships or, you know, are are interested in things like polyamory. Um, prior to that, prior to me being in the program, I would have told you I'm so progressive and I just mm-hmm. have all of these friends who are so progressive like I am. Um, now I just see it completely differently. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like it's not a moral judgment on those things. It's just a matter of chemistry with the- – with those people. Yeah, it's not a moral judgment on those things at all, but in in, you know, I guess in the specific examples that I'm referencing, um there's a piece that's there that you can that is very identifiably um dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, friends who um unfortunately are really struggling mm-hmm. in this regard and you know, in some cases there's infidelity and there's, um, you know, a lot of posting on social media for what I deem to be the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming by. And I'm really glad I got to hear your story. I'm really glad the listeners got to hear your story. And, and thank you so much for, for going so deep. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great fun. Did you enjoy that? I hope you did. I did. And you know what? If you didn't, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Not a mild go fuck yourself. I mean, Hall of Fame. Go fuck yourself. That seems like that's a little aggressive way to start the the last third of the podcast. But you know what? That's that's how I studied podcasting uh, at university uh, in the 80s, uh, 30 years before (laughs) podcasts would become popular. So they didn't know a lot. Let's not go down this rabbit hole of a bit. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Uh, This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by Franklin. And she writes, uh, to the question, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? Uh, She writes, when I feel depressed or anxious, you'll never get better. You'll always suffer. And you probably should suffer. That's her saying that, not me. Just that, oh, that, that just makes me laugh because it, what a great example of how fucking awful we are to ourselves. Not only you'll always suffer, 
You probably should suffer. I mean, oh, God, the brain is just such a beautiful, horrible, gorgeous piece of shit. Uh, when I make mistakes or I can't control a situation, I tell myself, you're worthless. You're a piece of shit. Garbage. Idiot. Total fuck up. And then in parentheses, this is my mom's voice in my head. And then when I'm lonely, you'll die alone and be eaten by wolves or my dog. <laughs> well, I think it, it makes a big difference if it's a dog or wolves because uh, wolves, that's one sitting. Your dog, mm, that's going to... That's going to take a while. That's going to be some low-quality eating towards the end there. This is a happy moment filled out by Boogie, and she writes, Walking out of my job that was killing me for the last time, knowing I didn't have to go back. Drove past it today and already have the auto middle finger when I drive by. But I was relieved to go, all the while sad that I was leaving an awesome co-worker that I've been so close with so fast. I wanted to cry when he hugged me goodbye, but I also felt total love when he asked for that hug. That made me happy. Good for you, man. Good for you. Way to get out of that. There, there are few things as draining as a shitty workplace. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Kendall. And uh, to the question, what are some of the things you tell yourself about yourself? That I'm not good enough. That my boyfriend doesn't really love me. I've almost convinced myself that he wants someone better. <laughs> you know, I think if you put your mind to it, you can convince yourself that he wants someone better. It's just, you know, you got to stop being lazy. And you really just got to join forces with that mean voice in your head. And you can accomplish anything that you put the mean voice in your head to. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself human is person. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s, says that she was raised in a stable and safe environment. She's never been sexually abused, uh, but she has been physically and emotionally abused uh, from bullying in school. Um, darkest thoughts. I should be bludgeoned with a sledgehammer. Uh, I don't deserve what I have. Darkest secrets. I still wet the bed most nights at 22 years old. Some mornings I lay in the mess and don't want to get up. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Taking a nap next to someone I trust. And for some reason, weight gain cartoons. I've never shared that with anyone, and I'm glad it is still relatively a secret. I don't want to be associated with feeders who I believe are really harmful and manipulative in what they do. I wouldn't watch a real person do that, although I do sometimes look at cartoon people gaining weight for pleasure. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would be next to friends I respect and feel comfortable. Uh... I would be next to friends I respect and feel comfortable around them. I would, oh, I see she's setting the scene. I would tell them I appreciate them without worrying this would freak them out. What, if anything, do you wish for? Clear, happy thinking. That's a good one. Have you shared these things with others? Not the sex fantasies, but everything else. Telling people I was manipulated by a close friend got nods of understanding. People didn't know what to say, but took it. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel like I was too graphic or might have dr 
dramatized something. I feel all right, a little guilty to be putting personal stuff onto a stranger, a little excited and happy. And then I love this. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences, you aren't defined by your weakest moments. Oh, what a, what a great sentiment. And so true. It's so easy for us to think our weakest moments is who we really are. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Franklin. And uh, she writes, This week in mediated therapeutic conversations with my narcissistic personality disorder mother, I finally told her that I don't want to speak with her more than twice a month. And I only want to speak with her with someone else present. She's been consistently pressuring me to have unmediated conversations with her, which is always the context within which she becomes verbally, emotionally, and physically abusive. I'm so proud of myself for setting a clear, reasonable, truthful boundary, but I'm also waiting for the other abusive shoe to drop. Well, God, how could you not? But high fucking five to you, man. And I love how you say that. A clear, reasonable, truthful boundary. I mean, if you can if you can get a sense of what that is like as an adult or even a, as an adolescent and be willing to set those boundaries, you can have a happy life. You really can. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by... Um, a guy who calls himself too afraid to die alone. Uh, he identifies as straight. He's in his 20s, says that he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. He's never been sexually abused, but he's experienced tons of physical and emotional abuse by his uh, older brother. Uh, and I'm just going to share some of them. Uh, having chairs thrown at me for not telling him what he wanted to hear, having an encyclopedia smashed on my head till it tore apart, getting a right hook to my face for enjoying a friend's birthday party, and more. It always ended with him claiming I caused him pain when he punched me and that he was doing all of this for my own good. I was threatened never to tell my parents because they weren't always going to be around to protect me from him. Five years ago, when I met my significant other, I decided to spill the beans to my dad. He encouraged me to tell my brother off and live the way I wanted to. That conversation with my brother ended with me being choked against the window. He had made me believe that I would be alone if not for him. My dad intervened, and that was the last time I spoke to him. I tell myself that I stayed for that long because of my sense of loyalty, but underneath loyalty was just my utter sense of fear fear of being hurt, but also a fear of hurting him if I started returning the punches. This trauma has stolen away my ability to dream and love myself. I know that I am much stronger having survived the abuse. I've developed a lot of empathy and compassion for others. Most days I struggle to show that to myself and retain a positive outlook on my future. Any positive experiences with the abuser? For all the physical violence I endured from my brother, he would shower me with gifts, pocket money, and rare occasions uh, of kind words. It was so hard to wrap my head around the fact that I was being abused when I also had some great moments with him. 
Darkest thoughts. I used to spend a lot of time imagining the darkest ways I could hurt people I know in my life. Ways I would make them bleed and suffer. This was a way of expressing my suppressed anger when I was being abused. Darkest secrets. I was introduced to porn when I was around nine years old by my brother. He would tell me inappropriate sexual stories about people we both knew. I was aroused by these stories as a kid and didn't know they were wrong. Even now, my mind sometimes gets hijacked by those thoughts and feelings, leading to some arousal, and I feel a huge sense of shame and guilt. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Sometimes fantasies with older women who are caring and supportive. Sharing that makes me feel safe, but also ashamed. I wonder why you feel ashamed. Well, everybody, I think... I think we all think whatever it is that turns us on is something that we should be ashamed of. And then somebody shares something with us that's their turn on or their fantasy or their kink. And we're like, well, there's nothing wrong with that. What are you beating yourself up for? Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? A happy and content life where I help others through their struggles and challenges. Have you shared these things with others? I shared it with my partner and a few friends. When I told my partner, she was so accepting and understanding of it, which makes me feel seen more. My friends were pretty shocked to hear, but it quickly changed the topic, not knowing what else to say. How do you feel after writing these things down? Hoping someone out there going through these things can relate. Uh, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences. You are loved and you are not alone. You have the strength to look after yourself even if others won't. Uh, echoing what Paul G. has been saying, be compassionate to others but not at the expense of compassion for yourself. I just read that because I wanted to be quoted. This is from the love survey filled out by... Uh, somebody who calls himself hardly working and they write i love when i naturally wake up early on a weekend make coffee and put on a comforting show i love when my dog wakes up from a nap and immediately demands pets <laughs> i love hot apple crisp on a cold fall day that sounds good and i love when i get home from work and my girlfriend runs over to give me a kiss oh those are awesome is there anything better than somebody excited when you walk into the room. It is such a great feeling. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Fuck You and Me. She identifies as straight. She's in her 40s. Says she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She was a victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she writes, Many incidents. Recently remembered being touched as a child. And the reason I hid it from myself for four decades is because I liked it. In college, I was sexually assaulted. Took it to my pastor and he shamed me. Never suggested I call the police. I stayed in an abusive marriage for 20 years. That was some sick sexual shit. Uh, she's been physically and emotionally abused. Uh, she writes, Childhood which taught me to take it and smile, equals abusive marriage. Divorced now and for the last four years have not been abused. Whole new world. Um, darkest thoughts. I want deviant sex, but my relationship is better than anything I've had before, so I won't. But porn is ever-present. Darkest secrets. I think I shouldn't... I think I shouldn't enjoy my job as a substance abuse counselor because that would be enjoying my client's pain. 
so I won't last much longer. I cry in my office between sessions. I enjoy porn. The one about you shouldn't enjoy your job as an abuse, a substance abuse counselor because that would be enjoying your clients. Man, that doesn't make any sense to me. It sounds to me like if you enjoy your job, it's because you're being of service and helping people, and and it feels like you have a purpose there. Um, but the part about crying in between sessions, I don't know what it's like to be a drug counselor or a therapist. Uh, so I don't, you know, maybe, maybe it is too intense. Um, or maybe that's something that is just that people experience in the beginning of it. I don't know, but it sounds like you're judging yourself a lot. Leave the judging to me. Let me judge you from on high in my big throne on top of a soapbox. It's a little wobbly up there. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being with lots of people, near abusive stuff, beyond description, sick. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my clients everything I've been through and how much I understand the sickness of their lives because I'm fighting it too, but they don't need that. I got to question you there. I got to question you there because I know people whose lives have been changed by somebody letting them know that they're not alone. Now, if you were a therapist as opposed to a uh, substance abuse counselor, divulging that uh, might might be problematic. But I, I don't know. I can't see how that would be something... I mean, obviously, you don't want it to turn into therapy for you, but um, I think a lot of times our trials and tribulations, whatever you want to call them, can be useful if we can use it to uh, help somebody else know that they're not alone and that we have either gotten through it or are in the process of getting through it. Uh, I'd like to tell my parents how much they fucked me up and still bring me down, and that's why I don't talk to them. Um, what, if anything, do you wish for? Peace, stillness, to feel good and not be scared while feeling it. Have you shared these things with others? Yes. Some have been gracious and kept me alive. How do you feel after writing these things down? Scared, but I'm always scared. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Fuck the people who did this to us and the horse they rode in on. Be selfish with your life in healthy ways. I hope that you talk talk to maybe another counselor about this um, thought that you have that you need to keep that you can't share any of your personal experiences with uh, with people. And then finally, this is from the Love Survey filled out by a person who calls himself Beetle, and they write, "I love crossword puzzles." I love building complex Lego sets, gardening, anything that forces me to get out of my head and be present. I love the way my dog stretches every time he gets up from a nap. And I love compliments from little kids because you know they mean it. It is so true. It is so true. Kids, I remember, I don't know if I shared this on the podcast before, but uh this was years ago. My my friend Mike, uh, his daughter, I don't know she was like six or seven years old. She looks at me and she goes, why are your teeth yellow? 
always feel so bad for the parent. You know, of course, Mike was like, oh, honey, we don't say that. I was like, it's okay. It, it was funny. It was funny. And that's the image I want to leave you with is my corn chip. <laughs> what do you think? Aren't actually that yellow? But as opposed to a, to a little kid with gleaming white teeth? Maybe I need to do those dental strips. Oh, this is, this is, looked like it was going to end nice and clean and wrapped up with a tidy bow. And it's just, um, I'm rowing a tugboat in uh, a lake full of diarrhea. Let me leave you with that image. <laughs> oh, if you're out there and you're struggling, uh, just never forget that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home, yes, cool, or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com/internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability, as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H 2023. Results may vary. Not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply.